Well, hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Recovery Jam. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York, and um, we're going to jump right into this chapter. It's a really super important chapter. It's got like the best name of a chapter of all. There is a solution. There's a solution. And, you know, it's it's a it's one of those chapters that, yes, it's a step one chapter, but it's really, it's like a it's that middle chapter, I would say it's where my foot is in between steps because I'm getting full knowledge, lots of information about the problem. And, and this offers me a little bit of hope, which is that step two promise, right? So there is a solution and we're gonna find out a glimmer of really what the solution is. So let's crack open the book on page 17 and it says, it's going to start off with, you know, we're people who normally would not mix, right? This group of people, we wouldn't necessarily mix, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding, which is indescribably wonderful. And then it goes on to explain that we're like passengers on a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie and joyousness and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain table. So it's like, it doesn't matter where you are in this ship. Our ship was going down, we got rescued and now everybody feels this sense of closeness together because we've been saved, right? But what's different is on a ship that's about to go down, that gets rescued, um, you know, the joy and the escape from disaster, it subsides as they go their individual ways. Everybody gets rescued and they're like, okay, they're out of here. But for us, not so, right? The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us. So we're gonna find out there's something else that binds us together. Not just that we were rescued, not just that we were saved, but that's not gonna be enough for us because that in itself would never have held us together as we're now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. Now that's gonna begin to bind us, that we have a solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. Can you imagine all these people can actually agree on one thing? Like variety of people right now can come together and say, yep, we agree on it. And not only can we agree on it, but we're going to join together in brotherly and harmonious action, working together, right? And this is the great news that the book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. So that paragraph, it talks about friendships that come from being rescued together. But those relationships don't endure once the rescuing is done and the celebration is over. Ours continues, though, indefinitely because in order for us to remain rescued, we help in the rescuing of still others. And that's what makes it very different than just being rescued on a ship, right? Um, that we're bound together through self-sacrifice and working with others. And those that have been rescued, what do we do? We consistently get back in the water and rescue others. In fact, we can't remain rescued unless we do that very thing. And so that's what makes us very different, 
right, than, than just regular people who get rescued and disappear. Page 18 says an illness of this sort, and we've come to believe this is an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all are sorry for him, and no one is angry or hurt, but not so with the alcoholic illness, for there goes all annihilation of all the things worthwhile in life. So our disease of compulsive eating rarely is even viewed as a disease or even, you know, even more than that, it's not even seen as an addiction. Like we have to do sort of this convincing of ourselves and others that this is a real thing, that people are addicted to food, right? And now the most frustrating thing is that not only do other people not believe it, but we don't even give that understanding to ourselves. We doubt it ourselves, you know? And so the frustrating part really is that with this disease, the sick person has no enthusiasm for the treatment, right? We find out that there's this treatment and we're not enthusiastic about it, right? And so we're lectured, we're ridiculed, sometimes fat shamed, sometimes we do it to ourselves, right? We look at old pictures of ourselves. And we're like, God, how did I let myself go? You know, what did I do to myself? Um, and for me, you know, I suffered miserably and so did my family, so did people around me, but I did not take this problem of mine seriously. I didn't take it seriously. Um, and hearing that it's a disease, well, that's an important part of the process, although it's not enough to be the entire solution right? Just finding out that you have an illness doesn't cure you of the illness. Anybody who's ever gone to the doctor and got a diagnosis with anything knows diagnosis is important, but the treatment plan is the most important thing, right? You must have a treatment plan. So, you know, so nothing before this worked for me, right? Nothing worked. Doctors tried to scare me. My family members sat me down they tried to give me good talking to, told me they were worried and nothing worked. Except obviously something did, right? Because I'm here. So what worked? What persuaded me? What got me to take action? Other compulsive eaters, right? Other compulsive eaters are part of the solution. Page 18 says the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. So we're being given directions right here on how we carry the message, how to win the confidence of others, because that's our job, right? If you've gotten well, your job now is to try to win other people's confidence. Well, first of all, in order to do that, you have to be an ex-problem drinker or a recovered, right, compulsive overeater. You have to no longer be living in the grip of the illness. And you can't be someone who never had this problem, right, or who has this problem and who is still suffering with the symptoms. You've got to have this problem 
and no longer be suffering. When we carry the message, we don't use frothy emotional appeal. We're armed instead with facts about ourselves. And we talk about ourselves and our experience. That's the direction here. We tell our own experience. And what I find most that really seems to draw a fellow compulsive eater in is when I share a story of my own suffering because it piques interest. It gets people to say, wait a second, there must be something that she knows here, right? And it gets the attention of the addict. Now, the next paragraph also tells me precisely how to approach someone, right? So I'm going to find out how to win their confidence and how to make the approach. And here's how we make the approach. Well, you have to be a man who has had the same difficulty, that you obviously know what you're talking about, that his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with the real answer. There is no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful. That there are no fees to pay, no axes to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we find most effective. Okay, so what's, a help, what's helpful? The right information delivered from a calm and humble messenger. Right? People are not convinced when the person carrying the message has a superior attitude, right? Or who, who's, you know, when it says the whole deportment shouts at them, not their words are shouting at them, but that there's something in the way that they carry themselves, something in the way that they show up that kind of shouts, wait a second, this person has an answer. So no superior attitude no ax to grind, meaning a complaint that they must discuss, right? So that's what it means to have an ax to grind. So a good call does not discuss the issues that you have with pay and way programs, right? That's not a positive, that's not the way we carry the message, telling people how awful those pay and way programs are or other offshoots of OA, right? A good 12-step call does not put down the way someone else might have approached this program, right? So we should never like put down um, anyone else's avenue or ways of getting a relationship with God. Because remember, we're told we have no monopoly on God. So there's no ax to grind. Um, the recovered fellow should have the right demeanor. The way they carry themselves is louder than their words. Page 19 through 20, it says, okay, of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters, medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are from their very nature controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument we shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. And most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and respect for their opinions or attitudes, which make us more useful to others. 
our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. So this is part of the solution that we are going to be right from the get-go starting to think about others, right? And it says here that in recovery, there may be conversations that involve topics that might seem to incite disagreements, debates, and disputes, but our solution means that we are going to proceed carefully if we find that we're in that, in that arena. We don't set out to instigate problems. Why? Why not? Why shouldn't we go in there looking to like drum up and stir up problems? Because it's not useful and it's not helpful. And that's our aim, useful and helpful. Our solution is to be useful, to be helpful, to meet people's needs. We have to be tolerant of shortcomings and viewpoints, right? And tolerant meaning desensitized and perhaps a little thicker skinned. And our lives are going to depend upon this, you know? And originally, right, I thought, oh, my life is going to depend on my food plan. No, my life is going to depend upon being tolerant of others. That's what my life starts to depend on. Now we're going to look at the different types of drinkers or eaters. And that's page 20 to 21. And it says moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. And I would say, yeah, those are people who just don't have a problem really, right? They're moderate. They can take it or leave it. And if they have a reason to put it down, they put it down, right? They want to fit into the dress. They notice they've gained a little weight. They cut it out and they're able to just keep on going like that. Hard drinkers may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair them physically and mentally. It may cause them to die a few years before their time. But if there is a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, the man can also stop or moderate. Although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. And so there are people who go to the doctor and the doctor says, wait a second, your blood pressure is high. You know, your cholesterol is high. They give them a good talking to. They might help them with a nutritionist. They might put them on a plan. There's even some people who have had surgeries and that works for them. It actually gets them to stop, right? And these are the people who can have success at pay and weight places and bariatric surgery is perhaps an option for those people. And you know what? You can also find them at OA meetings. And they're welcomed here because the only requirement for membership at a meeting is a desire to stop eating compulsively. And so we welcome people, right, amongst us. We might not, you know, you might not know whether it is that you have this, right? They can get well with support and a good food plan. And I have to tell you, I was hoping that that was going to be me. 
<laughs> that was what my early years in Overeaters Anonymous went was like. I was not working the program. I was working a fellowship. I was working outreach and support, which is wonderful, which is excellent, but it's not enough. That's not the solution, right? Fellowship alone is not the solution. Fellowship helps get me in touch with the solution, but it in itself is not the solution. All right, so now what about the real alcoholic? What about the real compulsive overeater? You might start off moderate. You may or may not become continuous hard drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. So <clears throat> here we're getting a clearer understanding of what a real compulsive eater is. And why do we need to know this now? Why do we need to know specifically what the difference is? You know, because I thought we were gonna start talking right about the solution and now it seems like we're not. Now it seems like I'm finding out more about if I have this problem. Well, unless I'm convinced, remember this is still a step one chapter, unless I am convinced that I am the real compulsive eater, I likely won't feel the need for the solution. The chapter continues to describe the real alcoholic to further help us determine if we truly are in this category. Okay, so now page 22 says, why does he behave like this, right? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with suffering and humiliation, why does he take the drink? Why can he stay on the water wagon, right? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respects to other matters? And it says, well, perhaps there'll never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently than normal people. We're not sure why. We don't know why it is that once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. So I know for me, my early part of recovery, I really thought that I was gonna find out the why, right? And the solution does not involve discovering why we became compulsive eaters. In fact, think about it. If you go to the doctor, because you're suffering from a specific ailment. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter how exactly you got it. What matters is how are you gonna get well? And it makes me think, I remember when my kids were really little and, and they went to daycare and um, a kid in the class would get sick, right? And sometimes the mom brigade would be like, well, who was sick first? Like we're going to identify who was the who was the little contagion that got in here and got all our little kids sick, and that's interesting. Maybe if you want to assign blame to other mothers for sending their kids sick, but it's not going to get your be kid better, right? The requirement is go to the doctor, get the medication, right, and never you mind how it actually happened. And that's really my solution here as well for me. Doesn't really matter how I got it. What matters is that I get the treatment. So, yeah, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink 
thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. And what are alibis? Explanations, reasons, excuses, defenses. Actually, the alibis are the lies my mind creates to get my mind to tell me it's a-okay to eat, right? Those are my alibis. And sometimes, here's the thing, those excuses can have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. So in a weird way, these lies my mind tells me that gets me to give in, they sound believable. And really my mind would make the extra bite or extra helping of food or a, you know, a food choice sound like no big deal. My brain minimizes the danger. It's my mind that's the problem here. You know, and so it says here that it sounds like the philosophy of the man who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning, fallacious is mistaken, misleading, erroneous, deceptive, false, wrong, right? Wrong reasoning. To the attention of the alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. And yep, that was the way I treat, that was the way I reacted, right? I would laugh it off. So for me, you know, how do I, how do I think about this? Well, you know, I always wanted to treat any physical ailment or any ailment with an extra bite of food, right? And in my mind, it sounded reasonable, right? So if I had a stomach virus, I'm, I'm someone who would want to eat to make my stomach feel better. I would want to find specific foods, right? That I know I can't eat, but people who have stomach viruses tend to eat those foods. And so I would say, oh, that's okay, right? And that's, the sad, that's like the fallacious reasoning. That's hitting myself on the head with a hammer, expecting the headache to stop, right? So... I ate for myself mostly to ease the pain I felt that was caused by my compulsive eating, right? I had a lot of pain that I was suffering from, from being, from being an addict, from living in this disease, and nothing so much as soothed the pain of living in a 300-pound body quite as much as eating. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. As miserable as I felt, what always I always wanted was the food to help ease my misery, just creating more misery, right? Page 23, the third paragraph, it says, okay, but everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. You know, and by the way, it wasn't just my family that wanted me to pull myself together, to get motivated, to get moving, to do something. I was also awaiting the day, right? I was like, someday, someday, I lived my entire life for years saying, someday when I'm thin out. That was like my line. 
someday when I'm thin, I'll. Someday when I'm thin, I'll. And, and for me, what that meant was that I was only really partly alive. I was like holding my breath, waiting to start living. And it was experiencing life from a window. I'm looking, I'm in, inside, and I'm watching the rest of the world live through this window. And I couldn't get out. I couldn't open the window on my own. Page 24, paragraph one says, the fact is that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drinking. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into conscious, bring in, bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. This is really what separates us from other people. Because basically what this means is that I cannot rely on my mind to keep me safe. I can't rely on my memory. I have a memory that does not work effectively where food is concerned. I have a form of food senility. That's how I think about it. And I've got a great memory for many other areas of my life. But somehow where this is concerned, I either forget in the moments when I need to remember most, I forget what's gonna happen, or I forget that I care what's gonna happen. And that for me is the worst, because many times I would set off not intending to just have a handful. Nope, I was intending to binge. I was intending, I would go out and I'm gonna binge. But I thought, well, I either thought that the next day I was gonna be able to get it together because I failed to remember that I had no more power the next day than I had in that very moment. I was not gonna suddenly magically have power to do anything about it. And I also, in those moments, forgot that I even cared. I didn't seem to care when I needed to care most. You know, and the other thing is, is that I have a willpower, which has an unreliable expiration date. You know, I have willpower and then it's gone. Then it's no power, right? And I'd say it's not like the carton of milk in my refrigerator that has, you know, an expiration date stamped on it. I never know when my willpower is going to be gone. It just suddenly isn't there. Um, you know, and so there are certain consequences that, um, that follow taking even a, a glass or a bite or a sip or an extra. Um, and that doesn't crowd into my mind to deter me. It doesn't stop me. And if those thoughts come in, they're hazy. They're hazy, they're not really clear. And they're readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There's a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. So what does that mean? Consequences don't work. Hot stoves, the consequence is the painful burn. 
Well, consequences don't work for me. Rewards and consequences are generally very effective when it comes to managing behaviors, which you know is how I know that the problem I have is an unmanageable problem by me. Cannot manage this problem. For me, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to handle the food like normal people, right? I knew it, but I always thought Monday I was going to get it together. Um, you know, and it and um, the difference is right that I I lived in this dream that one day I would wake up and have willpower, and you know, in college, I actually I had a crazy freshman year where I did what some freshmen do. I partied like a lunatic and I failed myself right out. I partied, I went out every night, I drank. I, um, and I was humiliated and embarrassed <laughs> and I vowed to get it together. And I actually did, I actually did. Because in that area, I did not have the same problem. I hadn't crossed the line there. So I was able to, you know, consequences for me worked there. Painful humiliation worked there. Didn't never worked with food, never worked with food. Pain and humiliation, regaining all the weight, you know, just never worked the same way. So it says here, when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid. And unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. But for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. Now we're getting an idea of what the solution is going to be. It's the grace of God. That is the solution. And what does grace of God mean? Well, you know, the root of it the derivative, it, 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 it's gracious. That God is gracious, meaning considerate, shows favor. That God is gracious would mean that he is favorably inclined towards us. That's our solution, is that we have a creator who cares about us, who wants us to get well. And so my entire recovery is going to now be reliant on the consideration and favor of my creator, which by the way, is unmerited, unearned, and always available. It was always there, but the solution is, is that I must align myself so that I can live in a state where I can receive and access the grace. And that's the solution, to gain access to the power, to a relationship with power right? Which is God's, which is the grace of God. And so there's the solution. Now we're going to find out almost none of us, we're not going to like it, but here it is. Self-searching and the leveling of our pride, the confession of our shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation, right? So, and we saw that this thing, even though we don't like it, it works in others. And we came to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living. And what happens that we have found much of heaven and have been rocketed into a fourth dimension 
of existence, which we have not even dreamed. And I have to say, I did not dream about living in the fourth dimension. I had no clue that that's what the solution was gonna be. My dreams were so small. My only dream was wearing a smaller size. That was it. Being normal sized body. That was my whole dream. Being able to predict what I was going to wear one day to the next and not worry about it. My dreams were so small. And the fourth dimension means that I live in a recovered state. And there are so many gifts of life in the fourth dimension. And here's what it is. Here's the solution. The great fact. This is a fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives, or hearts and lives, in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. So this is the fact of my life. So when people say, can you get well and remain agnostic, this kind of answers the question right here. And I know that's, you know, a different chapter, but, but we have to speak to that because agnosticism means that we don't believe that anybody can be certain. That's what agnosticism means, that we're not certain of the existence of God, nor do we believe that anybody can be certain. And yet my solution says, that the central fact of my life is the absolute certainty that I am 100% certain that there is a creator that entered into our lives and our hearts. That's the solution. And that when God enters our hearts and lives, what happens is the obsession to eat compulsively is banished. It's sent from our lives. It's sent away, right? Ripped out, right? And so what that means is that I can feel God inside of me. That's how I feel today. That I have a relationship with a loving, living creator that is gracious and powerful. And one of my favorite names for God is actually found in We Agnostics. And this is what it makes me think of when I read this part. It's on page 56. It says the presence of infinite power and love. And that's what it means here, that we have this power that comes inside us. It's infinitely powerful, infinitely loving. And when I'm asked, what is the solution? That's what I can point to. A process that when complete, allows me to have a relationship with a power that is infinitely powerful and infinitely loving that makes eating off my plan or eating foods I should not eat suddenly uninteresting, right? It does not make me stronger than get more willpower. What it does 
is it drives out the desire. It makes eating extra food no longer interesting. Bottom of page 25 says, if you're seriously alcoholic as we are, we believe there's no middle of the road solution. So guys, there's nothing in between having this power enter your heart and lives and do the miraculous or eating. That's it. Nothing in between because we're in a position where life was becoming impossible and we had passed into the region for which there's no return through human aid. We have two alternatives. One, go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted and were willing to make the effort. So here's what it is, right? I've got two choices. One, do everything in order to get a relationship with God that can enter my heart and live in a way which is miraculous or eat so much that my life is spent barely living, right? To drive out the consciousness of my intolerable situation. So either I'm gonna eat myself into a state of zombie, into a state of coma or get a relationship with God. And you know, when I read it, it's like, why would I choose anything other than that, right? Um, you know, and so what I, what I think about it is that there's two doors. There's the door to God, the door to the solution, and the door to the food. And we reach a point where life is so intolerable that the little piece of hallway in between those two doors falls out. There is no hallway anymore. It's either God is everything, which is this door, or God is nothing, the other door. That's it. And so we're left with two choices, to get a vital spiritual experience, right? Page 27, a vital spiritual experience, huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of our lives, of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. You know, there's a part there that sends you to, you know, the, the spiritual experience in the appendix, and it's excellent. And it goes into further explanation about what it means to have a vital spiritual experience, right? You get this personality change. And basically what I can say there is that I'm not the same woman I used to be. That the person I was before is not the person I am now. And that my roots grasp new soil. The things that sustain me, the things that give me pleasure, the things that motivate me are different. My view is different. The things that I love are different. You know, um, page 28 says, we've got no desire to convince anyone that there's only one way by which faith can be acquired, right? If we have learned and felt is that seems, means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, I love this. We are all the children of a living creator with whom we may form 
a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. So I love that because I remembered at one time thinking that this book was too male dominated or this book was too much in favor of one religion. And here, so revolutionary for this time period, it says, nope, whatever your race, whatever your creed, whatever your color, we're all the children of a living creator. And that the only requirement is that we need to be willing and honest enough to try. We need a relationship with God and it doesn't matter at all what your own religion is. It doesn't matter. God wants a relationship with you right as you are. And, you know, um, and those having religious affiliations will find there's nothing disturbing for your beliefs or ceremonies. There's no friction among us over these matters. There's no concern over what our religious bodies are. You know, um, in fact, we see varieties of religious people here of all different. And we find that those convictions are no great obstacle to a spiritual experience. Each individual in their personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. And so I, would, I wanna end with this because when you're asked, what is the solution? The answer is right here. To establish a relationship, a friendship, a companionship, a connection with God. And that all the actions we take, all the actions we're asked to take in recovery should be in order to establish this relationship and grow this relationship. And after all these pages, that truly is the whole point. And that not only that, but anytime that we're asked to share that, should be the overarching goal, right? To convince people that it is a relationship with God that is the solution. And with that, I'll pass.